When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Boogaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, Jana Matthews, medievalist extraordinaire, and I cover Sansa's first POV chapter. This is the chapter where Joffrey gets what's coming to him from Arya and Nymeria. And of course, things get complicated between Sansa and Joffrey. And Steve and I talk about Season 2, Episode 6, The Old Gods and the New. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. Without further ado, here is Boss Man Aaron. Ask Aaron anything! Okay, Aaron, worst Game of Thrones actor among the main cast. Uh, I mean, it's got to be Shay, right? Uh, she qualifies the main uh, cast. I would, I would think so. Yeah, like yeah, she you, always you like. And I Jim never liked Shay very much. I don't have that big of a problem with 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 Shay. I mean, I think. Well, keep keep going. I want to hear what you say. I mean, I just think that like, um, yeah, I just feel like in in the main cast, uh, she always had trouble and the thing is it's a it's kind of a tough character to play like maybe my dislike of her is uh a lot but like i don't know like uh i you like i'm supposed to be i'm so, I, I i don't know like the way that like the double d's and george martin uh talk about this 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 actor is like she came in and just completely blew them all away and wowed them and all that and i'm like and I never saw it. And then the more I know about Double D's and the more like I know about George Martin, like I mm. don't know. I don't I I, I don't know. Because like I that's the thing. It's like I'm trying to think of main cast and everyone like everyone, like even the ones that started off a little rough, like some of the Stark children. Mm. Um, I think, you know, there's some things you could criticize about Kit Harrington in the early goings. But you know, I he can do. Uh, I've seen him do really good comedy. I've seen him do really good drama. Obviously, like everyone's pretty strong. That's the one that I I, I keep coming back to. Like I think, and Kit I don't think Harrington gets stronger. I think Jon Snow becomes a more interesting and stronger actor as as the thing progresses. And for whatever reason, I don't. I think Bran gets a lot worse. Hmm. So well, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know whether that, that was just a, a choice or he didn't get. Whether, it, yeah, he didn't get to stretch his wings nearly, you know. Yeah. I mean, he was carried around by Hodor for most of the series, so, like, he didn't get a lot of the dramatic range. In fact, a lot of stuff when he was being dramatic, it's like he just rolled his eyes back in his head and went comatose, <laughs> like, right? Uh, so, I, yeah, that's... But I think that, like, the thing about Shay is that, like, I also don't think that her and Dinklage had a lot of chemistry. 
Like mm. I'm supposed to believe that this is the woman that he's going to burn. What? But but that's the thing is I keep warring with myself. It's like, well, that's the story, right? But the meta narrative is that Tyrion is starving for any kind of authentic affection. Yeah, he and, is. Any, yeah, if you can convince Tyrion that you love him just for him, yeah, you, you can totally. Which is different than loving him finger. for his gold, which he has experienced hundreds of times with women all yeah. over Westeros. And I, that's the thing. It's like. Do I need to believe there's natural chemistry there? Do I need to believe that she's just got him wrapped around her finger? But then there's got to be some of that natural chemistry for me to believe that. And I just See, I think feel like that there was. It. I think there was. Uh-huh. I don't know. I'm, it's it's weird how some some actors just rub you wrong. Like I like I hate Russell Crowe. Ah, I just hate him. But I know that a lot of people love him, and I don't really have a good reason to hate him. Yeah. I just I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. It's it's all it's all me. It's Russell. It's not you. It's all me. Yeah, I have a little bit of that with Mark Ruffalo. Mm, yeah, where it's like I actually like his characters a lot, but it's like he's got this one thing where he kind of just kind of like gazes to the middle distance and does a pouty face, and like that's Did you his ever go see to. You can count on. There's a movie called You Can Count on Me. Huh. It's really good. It was the first thing I saw him in, and he was fantastic. He, you know, he kind of, he's kind of like a... He's been fantastic in a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I, I always kind of... It's, always, it's it's a little bit weird. Like, you, the first thing you see someone in, if they impress you... Yeah. Then you kind of forgive them in other performances. Yeah. Um, What did you think about um, a little thing? Well, what's the, the actor that did Littlefinger? Do you remember his name? Aiden something or other, right? Right. What did you think uh, of him in The Wire? Oh, I thought he was. I thought he was great. In fact, I I thought, um, knowing that I'd read the books and uh, seen the series, I thought he was exceptionally well cast because Baelish is kind of like Carsetti with yeah. you know writ large I totally in a medieval it. setting. You know, I totally Aiden get Gil- it. Aiden Gillen. That's his name. Yeah, I didn't like him in The Wire. There was just something that rubbed me wrong. I just didn't. Well, he's Littlefinger. Like- <laughs> I just didn't get it, and then I thought, and then when I saw him in Game of Thrones, I always had a problem with him in Game of Thrones, because, and I think it probably was colored by my experience of him in The Wire. Yeah, I feel like that, like, David Simon's got this really black-pilled take on politics, where it's like, the best you can hope, because, like, all these politicians are sociopaths, the best you can hope for is one will align up with your personal beliefs and you throw the cast a vote for them, right? Mm -hmm. Like, don't ever fall in love with these people. Don't ever, don't ever think that these, and I, I actually think that that's like not a bad way to look at it because then you're never going to get, you know, disillusioned because your hero turns out to be, you know, an abuser of wom- women or he commits war crimes or it's like, well, you know, that's just a sociopath that kind of sort of has my governmental preferences. Um, the trouble with that, because I have a good friend who, who takes that view of politics, and I think the trouble with that is that it allows for people who are truly moral monsters to get away with all kinds of shit that they shouldn't yeah. because everyone's, That's everyone's true. that bad. That's true. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I'd like to, I'd like to believe that some people actually do believe that they're making the world a better place. Yeah. I think those, the set of those people exist. And I think that like certain political climates are conducive to those type of people and certain political climates are not. And maybe, 
you know, we've been in a political climate for the last 30, 40 years that is conducive to the psychopaths. And maybe, you know, if, if we can uh, do our due diligence as citizens over the next generation mm-hmm. or so, we can leave our children with the an environment that's more conducive to, you know, um, like, you know, Mr. Smith goes to Washington types, like the uh, the Jimmy Stewart types, the, the, the people who are to have, you know, that that have a genuine compassion and care for people and, and, and want to do good governance. But we'll, we'll see. If you have a question for Aaron or Anthony, you can send those to book at baldmove.com. Back by popular demand, Jana Matthews, Associate Professor of Medieval Literature at Rollins College. Did I get that right, Jana? Yeah, that's perfect. All right, good. Jana, uh, when's the last time you called someone a prancing jacknapes? <laughs> um, just two minutes ago. No, I, I, I can't say I've, any, I've ever called anyone a prancing jacknapes, <laughs> but um, I, I sure do like that terminology, and I'll put it on my list. Yeah, this is what uh, Barristan calls uh, Renly. And I, after reading this chapter, it has been on my mind. And so this morning, <laughs> I called my son a prancing jacknapes. Perfect. But yeah, I hope that your son is a teenager. <laughs> He's 13, and it did indeed drive him to a dictionary. So that's there you go. <laughs> mission accomplished. Uh, I yeah. So Renly's a prancing jacknapes, and I have to say, rereading this chapter, which is, I mean, it's just riveting. The the chapter itself, there's so much happening, and it's so tragic and. I, I'm, you know, we're meeting a few of these characters for the very, very first time, but I found myself really kind of enjoying Renly on this reread. Yeah. Before we get going, do you, how do you feel about Sansa? Um, Sansa's a fascinating character just because she's so, uh, I think, grounded in the the traditional notions of medieval femininity, at least the ones that, yeah, that yeah. the Victorians have kind of have kind of isolated. Um, I, you know, you have to love her and hate her. Reading her from a 21st century kind of post Me Too movement um, perspective, and on on one hand, she so badly wants to ascribe to those ideals and then standards that yeah. of womanhood and femininity that have been established for her, but yet, you know, from the very get go in this chapter you know that um that that's just not going to happen the circumstances of her life are just going to force her outside that box i feel like i just i'm i feel like i hate her i hate her guts and yet i feel guilty about it because she's like 11 and like come on she's she's 11 how can you how can you fault her for any of this I, i think what's so fascinating about this particular chapter really i mean deals with kids yeah um you know we've got an 11 year old a nine-year-old and joffrey's 12 and and so these are these are kids and what you're seeing here is just like how thoroughly they are conditioned and trained to live into the social position and standing mm-hmm. in which they, they've inherited right for better or for worse um and so again like you said you you want to shake her out of it and you want to say uh you know, you know, there's so much more. There's a different model and way you can do this, but then you you also look at her with, with tremendous empathy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do a little synopsis of the chapter here. Asanza uh, anticipates her big day of riding in the queen's wheelhouse. She can't stop herself from thinking about Joffrey, her betrothed prince, and everything she's ever dreamt of. She finds Arya at the river brushing Nymeria and argues with her about pretty much everything. Arya has no intention of riding with the queen, doesn't much like the queen, would rather explore downriver with the butcher's boy who smells like a meat block, 
Sansa gives up and returns to camp to meet Barristan the Bold, Renly Baratheon, and although he scares her, Illyn Payne. In her exchange with the Hound, she confesses that she's terrified of Sir Illyn, and this gets the entire party laughing at her, which is something of a social nightmare for her. Joffrey saves her, and the two go riding together down the trident. What begins as a lovely day turns into mayhem. Joffrey cuts Micah. Arya smashes Joffrey's head. Joffrey swings a sword at Arya, and Nymeria takes Joffrey down by his arm. After Arya menaces Joffrey, she throws his sword in the river. Sansa tries to comfort her beloved prince, only to see his true face. He has nothing but contempt for her. Dun dun dun! (laughs) (laughs) Joffrey's true face is revealed. This was, I just couldn't, I I read this chapter a a couple times because it was so enjoyable. It just, it feels like things have been building and building and building and all of a sudden it's like, wow, this, there's so much action that's just packed right in here. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. This is a great chapter. I feel like Martin's, in this chapter, Martin's use of the sort of first person limited POV really works well for him because what we're doing here is we're seeing like we're seeing characters like the Hound and Ilan Payne and Joffrey and Arya through Sansa's eyes. And even though Sansa kind of hates Arya, for instance, or resents her or whatever sisters do, I I love Arya. So it's like I'm viewing through Sansa's limited perspective. And yet, I'm loving her sister all the more because of it. Um, absolutely, I I think that really we were getting a good a good glimpse of Arya and her her spirit and her fiery passion for for life, and I think just her individuality. And you know, ultimately, like what Sansa, even at this really young age, mm-hmm. um, has this model that she's she's trying to aspire to. And it is, it's, it's a box she's trying to fit herself into. And Arya is just a reminder that that box is artificial and that it's, um, that it's constructed and mm-hmm. that is, that box is highly unpleasant. And so I think what you see is Sansa pushing back um, at what she perceives to be a, a rejection of all the values that she has. But, but there's also this, there's also this sense of um, that Arya is like reflecting poorly on her and her ability to climb up the social ladder and to be kind of the, the person that she envisioned and always wants wanted to be uh, is being inhibited by her sister. Mm-hmm. And that can be like a really painful, a painful thing to live with, but that is also something that um, Sansa is going to have to grapple with throughout the rest of this novel. So I'm just going to read this. Let me turn on a light here so I can actually see what I'm... The sun went behind the clouds in Dayton, Ohio. Oh, you live in Dayton? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I grew up in Bellbrook. You're kidding me. No, I grew up in Bellbrook. Uh, my whole family, like, from, like, 18,000 generations back um, is from... Yeah, I was born in Kettering Hospital, and, yeah, so I that's thought that. you. I thought that you spent some time in L.A. or something like that. Yeah, so I, I moved when I was in, um, like, what, what I was saying, middle school into out to L.A., uh-huh. Um, but my whole family still lives in the Kettering area, you know, in, in Dayton area. That's so funny. Yeah, right? I love it there. 
Yeah. Wow. That, I had no idea that. I thought we like had the California connection. Yeah. No. Right. So I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, I went to high school there. You know, like lived in California. Love it. Mm-hmm. But I mean, right. I think it's odd to move from both of us have the California yeah, and Ohio funny. thing. That's funny. Yeah. All right. So let me just read this little section. Sansa already looked her best. She had brushed out her long auburn hair until it shone and picked out her nicest blue silks. She had been looking forward to today for more than a week. It was a great honor to ride with the queen. And besides, Prince Joffrey might be there, her betrothed. Just thinking it made her feel a strange fluttering inside, even though they were not to be married for years and years. Sansa did not really know Joffrey yet, but she was already in love with him. He was all she ever dreamt her prince should be, tall and handsome and strong, with hair like gold. She treasured every chance to spend time with him, few as they were. She treasured every chance to spend time with him, few as they were. The only thing that scared her about today was Arya. Arya had a way of ruining everything. <laughs> Arya represents the thing that Sansa most fears, that, mm-hmm. that Arya is going to embarrass her in front of the popular kids. Oh, 100. Yeah, 100%. And that more importantly, like she's going to embarrass her and that embarrassment or having the, it's like kind of the the crazy uncle or the crazy uh-huh. aunt in the family that is going to prevent you from marrying well and from like living into your hopes and aspirations. And so I think that isn't that sort of the, like the, the fear of horror that goes into, I think every um, aspiring elite, right? It, it, it is the sense that other people's behavior determines your social trajectory. That's right. And it's also got kind of like a, I don't know, like a high school musical vibe a little bit 100, yeah. where it's like, yeah, totally. Sansa's like this close to her dream. She's like inches away from everything she ever wanted. And she's making like a first impression on a bunch of new popular kids. And her little sister is just going to ruin it. And guess what? Arya ruins it. She ruins it for Sansa. And, you know, of course, you know, you can't blame Arya for anything in this chapter. Arya was brave and she was everything that Sansa wasn't. But Sansa's got a point. Arya is just going to ruin everything. Just her very existence, I think. And I think what's also fascinating is that the confrontation happens far away from, you know, from civilization. Like Arya, uh, and um, they they go, she, she goes and she, like, she plays and she does this play acting, not in the middle of everything. She tries really hard not to make a scene. Um, but like they find her. Yeah. Um, and so that's it. and so that's even one more reason why you know this this scene becomes so comedic but also so um, deep and rich, is because uh, like they intrude on her space. It's not the other way around. Right. Right. So that that that's totally right. And you were saying before using the metaphor of a box before, mm-hmm. like a social box. Well, there actually is a literal box in this chapter. <laughs> it's the wheelhouse. Yep. And I love the two uh, sisters' perspective on the wheelhouse. For Sansa, it represents the center of the universe. It is no, it's not. It's not the center. It's like the whole universe. She she'll be in the the wheelhouse. It'll be the queen. There will be lemon cakes, and Joffrey might be there. And and so she's telling 
Arya about this, and Arya's like, I don't want to be in there. You can't even see outside. And then Sansa says, why would you even want to look outside? Like, there's nothing to see out there. Everything in the whole universe is in that little box. Anyway, I think it works really well as a metaphor. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that's that, that is perfectly encapsulates their world visions at this particular moment. Huh? Yeah, Arya's thinking, I'm going to go down river with Mike. I'm going to find the lost rubies of, you know, the trident and, uh, you know, pretend to be a knight. It's like the part that each of them has the perfect day planned. Right. Mm-hmm. That's a good way of putting it. Perfect way. Of, yeah. And they both I sort of ruined it for each other. That's totally <laughs> it. Totally it. Oh, goodness. Now, I come to love Sansa, as, you know, as, as I, I think I'm supposed to love Sansa. But the, the little trick that Martin's playing here is that I think early in these chapters, Arya is just supposed to be so much more lovable. Um, I think I'm supposed to sort of be drawn to Arya. Um, but I, you know, not everyone sees it that way. I think when, when you, we, everyone inherently roots for the underdog sure. and for the misfit. And maybe that's part of just the, the, the culture of readers as a kind of self-avowed misfit himself. Martin has tremendous empathy for characters who don't fit the mold. And maybe as academics, we too gravitate towards figures who are most like ourselves, you know, weird and different and, um, you know, like march to the beat of our own mm-hmm. right, of a different drum. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, and, and I, I think that, you know, to to that end, um this is a this is a whole story about, at least in terms of King's Landing, about about a group, about royalty and about expectations and, and behaviors and codes that are set and that are determined and dictated in fate. And we have a figure who wants to push against that and to really challenge it. And that's what makes it interesting. And I think from the very get-go, Martin reminds us that um, the most memorable, the most interesting, the most powerful individuals in any story are those who who don't conform. Right. And it's those characters who have the most trouble, right? And that's, and trouble's interesting. Mm-hmm. Trouble's very interesting. I mean, and, and uh, you know, Sansa courts that, but, um, but definitely Arya does as well. Yeah. Okay. So at the end of this, who's has the worst predicament Arya or Sansa because they both get their perfect day ruined right mm-hmm. um I so I love that I love the fight scene for so many reasons and then I'm going to take this into PG-13 territory okay. which you probably will want to edit out edit out but um, I was just teaching a medieval literature class um, a few hours ago and we were and we were talking about Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, you know, and and like there's sort of this big long descriptive scene where they're they're talking about the knight's swords, and you know I kind of like jokingly said, but I really sort of meant it seriously that anytime you see a sword, it's a symbol of a of, of a penis. Yeah, you know? sure, and, it's a phallus, and, right? Sorry. And it, it's just like this universal like literary thing, right? And, and so I think when the swords become like sort of get whipped out, and and we have uh, this sword fighting, and we have uh, you know Arya. Um, fighting Jeffrey and hitting him on the head mm-hmm. with, uh, you know, piece of, essentially a piece of wood. Um, and we've got Joffrey with his sword that it says it's scaled down to as fit as 12-year-old frame. And so, you know, that's so symbolic of, of, who, jo- of who Joffrey thinks he is right. and who he's been conditioned and trained to be. Is He's a boy, but he's playing like a man. And then we have Arya who, um, 
just in her like sort of innocent naive um but very passionate way like reminds him that like no matter what no matter how fancy his sword mm. is and how taken tailored it is that he's he's not anything that he claims to be um and so we, we have a, a battle of the penises here I, Arya has one too exactly and it's so <laughs> it's uh, I'm, I'm glad that we have an, another useful metaphor here but um <laughs> But I bring so many gifts. I bring so many gifts here. <laughs> Discussions of penises and mm-hmm. boxes and all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I okay, so here's what happens from my memory. So are you or sorry, Sansa makes a little bit of a social misstep mm-hmm. when she when she kind of emasculates Joffrey by suggesting that are they gonna be safe if they leave the hound behind? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Joffrey's totally annoyed. He's like, "This is, you know, it's, he's 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 totally he's almost insulted that she would even question whether or not he would be man enough to protect both of them." And of course, that's when he whips out his sword, right? Yep. And of course, yep. and Sansa, she she can sort of make better with Joffrey by sort of fawning over it and admiring it, and then of course. All is all is well, right? His his manhood has been restored. <laughs> totally, yeah. I mean, I think that at the very very end of that chapter, you know, we have Sansa. You just said fawning over Joffrey. She goes over to him. You know, she mm-hmm. can. You know, she acts the part of kind of the the maiden who tends to her to the warrior who's fallen in battle and is you know yeah. mortally wounded or you know and, and playing the part of that scene um but you know in this case i think forgetting that he didn't die nobly or he didn't wasn't injured nobly he was injured because he was being a bully yeah um and he was he was hit by a girl from behind and um and then yeah, you know, a she's girl like, had a prince. bigger stick than he did exactly and his stick yeah. got thrown into the river <laughs> Yeah. He, he and the, has no stick anymore. He has no stick, right? And um and, and he responds he, he does not respond well to that overture. She responds in the conventional way that she's supposed to respond, uh-huh. which is this like fawning woman. And he doesn't respond back with the with the level of graciousness. And I think that this is also, you know, one of the many reminders in this early chapter mm-hmm. that he's not he is not he's a prince. Uh, when he wants to, and he plays by the rules when he wants to, but the rules are really there for him to meet, to manipulate other people. Um, That's interesting. You know, he he flips back at her. He's upset. He's mad. And there's also this recognition at the end that he can't solve his own problem, that he needs other people. She says, "I've got to go get help," and then he's like, "Okay, then go." Right. Um, when he's supposed to get up and and help himself, and he's he's really rendered impotent multiple ways here. Huh. That's it's so interesting. I think that this is kind of. When Ar- when when Sansa yells, "You're you're ruining it! You're ruining it!" Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> she's totally right. I mean, what what are they ruining? They're ruining the sort of the storybook possibilities of her marriage to the perfect prince, right? Yeah, I mean, this is the Disney fairy tale that's getting blown up in her face. Yeah, um, you know, and what's so I think interesting about that scene is that Sansa says that too late. You know, that the Sansa like strategically and willfully denies that um, Joffrey is ruining that fairy tale. And then he ruined it the minute that he kind of, you know, kept pushing them forward and going into terrain that she didn't feel comfortable right. with and like not listening and respecting her. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, so she's, she's, I, you know, blaming Arya, I think for um, what has already been ruined. Let me ask you a question. Maybe this is, an, it's, it's probably impossible to answer, but rereading this chapter again, 
I would I was asking myself if they don't encounter Arya, is Sansa safe? Mm-hmm. In other words, Joffrey takes Sansa out alone. He gets her drunk. Mm-hmm. He's getting sort of wild-eyed in his drunkenness. Does he mean to harm her? I think that is a fascinating question. And is I'm so glad that you brought that up because as I was rereading this, I was like, oh my gosh, this is way more creepy yeah. um, when you're reading backward than when you're reading forward. Yeah. And I that is such a powerful lesson um, because what you know martin is essentially doing is uh is, is is saying you know setting the stage of what of, of what violence looks like right and it, it doesn't happen in this dramatic way it happens by small degrees mm. um and you know multiple steps forward and I, I think you are you're spot on to say that that there's there's sort of red flags being raised all over the place it's kind you know, of by... like yeah I, it's really sort of the marks of a great horror author is like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sansa's an 11 year old girl so she can see she can see what's you know she can see the kind of the facts in front of her but she doesn't know how to interpret the facts mm-hmm. and the facts to you know an adult reader is that oh gosh there's so many red flags this kid's nothing but trouble this is all a lie you get, <laughs> get out of the house it's haunted yeah. you know that kind of thing but the haunted house in this case is Joffrey yeah so and I think that we're also at a really interesting point with Joffrey where, you know, he's, it's early enough along in the narrative and he's young enough that the reader is asked to suspend the same kind of judgments that Sansa is making about him, mm. which is that he, this is a 12 year old kid. Yeah. kid 12 year olds are impulsive. They want to explore. They are bad listeners. They're selfish and they don't think of others. And so, and all those things can be really innocent. And so as he leads her deeper and deeper, you know, away from, uh, you know, into the woods or into the clearing, you know, you start to, to wonder and ask the questions of like, well, well is that, is that the case? Um, and then even at the, when you see this, the episode of the fight, there's moments where you're able to see Sansa's point of view, um, which is, you know, she lashes out at Arya instead of Joffrey mm. um, in the sense of like, well, of course he's going to be mad because, uh, you know, he, he he was disrespected in a public way or he's just defending his masculinity mm-hmm. or like, you know, kids are impulsive. And so there's we're at this middle ground where I think Martin is is asking us to, to think about to think about Joffrey. Was he born this way? Is this is, is he really, truly cruel by nature or is this just a is this part of just a 12 year old kid being like a middle schooler mm. and middle schoolers are mean, you know, yeah. and nasty by nature? Yeah, he is. Okay, so I think that there's like a rumor that's revealed later in the books that he like there's rumors about him torturing cats or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, so we don't know that yet about him, right? Mm-hmm. But I think that there's something that we mistrust about him because he's too polished. Yeah. And he but you can totally tell that he's, you know, he's got a lot of immaturity and he he treats commoners really poorly. You know, he treats the hound really poorly. Um, and the fact that he's nice to Sansa sort of endears him to Sansa. What we find out eventually is that because he he's been emasculated in front of her, I think he always resents her for this. I think that, like, mm-hmm. tracking forward into the next few books, I don't think he ever forgives her for witnessing him 
you know, shout out. I'm going to tell my mother and yeah, you know. totally. I, you know what I was yeah. thinking of when I read this when I was young, I read um, the uh, Orson Scott card uh, Ender's game. Mm-hmm. All right. I think it in Ender's shadow, there's a bully and I forget the name of the bully, but uh, what card does is he says, look, because the bully had to sort of put down anyone that saw him vulnerable. Sure. And that's kind of this motivating character for this sort of budding serial killer. And I kind of got that same vibe with Joffrey. It's like Joffrey, Sansa saw Joffrey at his most vulnerable, and he's just never going to forgive her for it. Yeah. I mean, Joffrey's sense of confidence is is manufactured and replicated in a way that is uh is, is is highly scripted i think one of the most haunting lines for me is it comes a little bit earlier when they're when um cersei is sort of you know exiting from the mm-hmm. um from the carriage and and she says in sansa says she heard the queen say joffrey go to her and her prince was there and it that that line like joffrey go to her so sansa standing there and she is she it's like waiting with bated breath for this guy to emerge and, and to kind of like come running to her. And he doesn't, right. He has to be told mm-hmm. to go. And it's this directive <laughs> of, uh, right. Like this is your duty, dude, you know, like go hang out with her. Um, Which and you can kind of forgive a 12 year old boy. Totally. Because, right. You know. Totally. Yeah. I mean, and so in that sense, it's like all of these characters are just so confined and trapped um, by the by the the, the destinies yeah. that others have constructed for them you know he, like joffrey doesn't want to marry sansa you know he's not into girls yet like he's 12 year old boy well right? and mean, maybe what thrills him is like seeing creatures suffer i mean that's right they, that could just be who he is yeah i mean he's more interested in his sword <laughs> metaphorically and literally right <laughs> than sansa <laughs> Uh, the other thing that it struck me about the chapter, or you know what I should do? I should ask you, is there anything specific that you wanted to talk about with this chapter, like a, a character or a plot point or anything like that? Um, I think you honestly, I think, I think I, I think I got it to talk about the swords. And so I'm pretty happy. <laughs> okay. um, and I'm sorry if I've taken it off. Into no, 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 absolutely. So then you, um, this is great. I'm right. glad I didn't, I, I wasn't thinking about the swords before, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, here's the other thing that I th- struck me about this chapter. So Sansa's freaked out by ill and pain, and she almost stumbles. Like she's mm-hmm. so frightened that she almost stumbles, and she feels someone sort of, you know, stay, you know, catch her, you know, stabilize her, and she thinks at first it might be her father. And she turns around and realizes it's the hound with his horrible, you know, terrible burnt face and everything she, you know, is afraid of. Um, But I thought for a moment, like from her perspective, ooh, it's the hound. But from my perspective, I was thinking he he was acting fatherly in that moment. Yeah. And she she can't see it yet, but he there's something more to him, right? Yeah, I I think that what Martin does such a great job of is humanizing these characters and really portraying them as complex and nuanced entities. And so, 
you know, the fact that I, I love mistaken identities in literary texts because you know they're they're almost always by design, right. and so it is no accident that um, that the that the hound is conflated with the father um, here because he does sort of function in that way. Again, not not a traditional father role like we would imagine mm. in the twenty first century, and we would want and hope, but um, you know all the essential features are there, and I think it also what he's doing through the figure of of the hound here and and also later on is is portraying people as you know we have expectations for what how we want people to look and act and and feel and behave and what like love looks like mm. and hound challenges that um because he's so different can you hear that dinging just that last one i'm sorry about that like i am having the hardest time <laughs> sound taken off so i really apologize it's not a big deal Hey, I okay. want. I have. I got a question for a medievalist. All right. Yeah. All right. So there's talks. There, there's talk of three different sort of magical beasts in this uh, narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, one is an oryx, one is a shadow yes. cat, and one is a lion lizard. <laughs> and I can kind of get an idea of what those things are, the way that they're described, but. Uh, I, I wonder, are these like antiquated terms for, you know, like creatures we might find in like a bestiary or something like that? Yeah, that's a great question. So the the first one that you mentioned, and I, um, the... The Oryx. Oryx? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Eryx, Oryx. Yeah. Um, yeah, those are now, those actually, it's an actual creature. And it was, it's kind of like a, a now extinct form of like a very large cow or like a... Um, I think the cow actually had horns on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, so yeah, so these are most of the time are, are real creatures, like antiquated or like colloquial names for creatures that, that either once existed or, you know, were, were part of the, like the larger mythos of, um, of animals, definitely ones you would for sure find in medieval bestiaries. And bestiaries for those who don't know are medieval, largely medieval texts and their stories about animals that and also usually accompanied by images by hand-drawn illustrations of it yeah and what's so interesting about them is is that you know in the, in the middle ages you didn't have photographs you didn't have the internet to sort of google what an auric looks like and so they would they would circulate throughout you know the world and it also be often be like kind of grotesque representations of them because they're you know crappy artists who have like heard third hand a description of what these animals look like from different places and so that's why these animals regular animals take on this sort of bestial like mm. half monstrous quality mm-hmm. to them so that's what we got going on here. What about a lion lizard? Is that just like sort of Martin's view of what like a alligator or a crocodile would, would look like? Yeah. So there's actually a, um, there is a lion lizard with in medieval bestiaries. Um, and it's kind of like a, right. It is sort of a hodgepodge between an alligator and a iguana or a kimono dragon. Right. It's kind of all these sort of combinations of these figures. And so again, I think it's one of these creatures that's been that, that has that has emerged out of like out of myth and narrative sure. that would have been and I think it's fascinating that there's so much of of this text that is grounded in the Middle Ages, but then um is there's so much that's pulled from other kinds of or the European Middle Ages, right? And so much pulled from other other worldviews. So this is this is another example of um, of Martin taking the best from everything and just kind of putting it all right. in one uh, you know one spot and seeing what happens. Right, right. So notable introductions in this chapter: uh, Ilan Payne, Renly, Barristan Selmy. We've uh, we've heard of him previously, but this is the first time we I think we actually meet him. Mm-hmm. Um. We hear about an oryx, a lion lizard, 
uh, Shadow Cat. And that, just sort of jumping right into show versus book differences here, I feel like the show captures this pretty well. The The difference, the main difference that I could see is that the chapter really goes into this day-long sort of romp in the wilderness that Joffrey and Sansa have, mm-hmm. where they're like, you know, they're stopping for lunch, they're, you know, they're tracking a shadow <laughs> cat into his cave or whatever, you know, this is it just feels like it's it's a day long event for, before they even kind of come across Arya. And so that kind of gets condensed. But otherwise, I don't I, I, I really couldn't find any major differences between the sort of the key events here. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. And I think the shadow cat is an interesting one. Like unlike the other creatures which did have did have real life manifestations there's there's no direct linking of that term shadow cat huh. um in the middle in the middle ages at least that i know of or i'm familiar with um what it seems to be is kind of um like a kenning for a black panther sure. almost um yeah, right that's, that's a, the image it, that i got yeah, that's kind of the word, right? Is it's the and, and I think that it, that the, he does sort of medievalize it by turning it into a kenning, right. um, and a kenning is sort of two compound words that are put together that could you know sort of stand in for one single noun or one single term. So, yeah, um, th- so there is this element of like of like a fiction blurring with uh, with reality, um, and it, it the event that they're that the day that they spend is is kind of this like the beginnings of a romantic drama romantic comedy right you know you yeah. feel like um like they're gonna have there's gonna be some sort of romantic interlude and there's even that one one line that Sansa says where she, I can't remember she was she was talking about what she kind of imagining her day like like what do you want to do and she says I want to be with you mm-hmm. and you know and again mm-hmm. she's 11 years old so it's hard to not be gross and think about what she means by that but like if we're if you're gonna read that in this in this sense yeah she says like the touch of joffrey's hand on her sleeve made her heart beat faster what would you like to do be with you sansa thought but she said whatever you'd like to do my prince and so you know there's there's sexual tension that's um, oh for certain to form there absolutely and then what happens after that is we already know because of her interior world that she just doesn't understand Arya. one of the things that she just can't understand is why anyone would like horse riding because it messes you Mm -hmm. up and it makes you all sweaty and you get all dusty and gross and then uh you know joffrey's idea of a good date is to go horseback riding and what she say she says oh i love horseback riding right yeah (laughs) i mean she defers ultimately in that moment you know she has she has a need right she has a desire Mm -hmm. she wants to be with him and you can interpret that for what you know what you will and his response is, is that they can be together, but not really, not with in the sense that she wants physical connection. Huh. And at the very, very end of that chapter, when he's hurt and she's going, she's rubbing his forehead and she's touching him, the last thing he says to her is like, and don't touch and me. Don't touch me. And don't touch me. Right? Oh, so he, poor See, I, I, I can't hate her for very long. I, I, know. I feel so sorry for her. She, this is her. I know. It, it, it could have gone so differently. They had their nice little meet cute. And he like <laughs> he was her knight in shining armor. The stakes are pretty low, but for her they're high because yeah, being embarrassed but in front of the popular kids is like the wor- her worst nightmare. Mm-hmm. And he's the one that saves her and takes her away from the horrible you know faces of ill and pain and the hound and things like that. 
It all could have gone so well. But yeah, but at the same time, like this is such a predictable big middle school romance. Uh-huh. Like, these are middle schoolers. Like, this is sort of on on either end, right? This is the this is the dream that you have of like what your first relationship is going to be like, mm-hmm. and you get that from TV and you get that from movies, and then you you know finally get your first boyfriend and he won't acknowledge your presence in public or talk to you uh-huh. or right. And there's like you know he'll give you a high five, and that's the only kind of physical contact you get. <laughs> like that's so middle school, and so so I think you know like part of it is. And that, that's again where like the, it's it's really strategic and kind of ingenious so that he's he, we aren't sure at this point if this is a dysfunctional relationship or if they're just middle schoolers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now Steve and I talk about the old gods and the new. At season two, episode six, this is where Theon chops off Roderick Castle's head and his glorious neck braids. Steve, is it easier to trust a kind stranger or a gruff stranger? Uh, what am I trusting them with? I don't know. I think, I mean, like, if you meet a stranger you know, and meet someone new and they just, they're like effusive, very cordial, do you find that initially trustworthy? Are you you're more inclined to trust that person or less inclined to trust Oh, less, that for sure. I mean, uh, I... I've seen friends buy fake gold chains from the most effusive um, yeah. uh, folks uh, in, um, in San Francisco. So. <laughs> well, I, I suppose buying gold chains in the yeah. city. <laughs> yeah. I but mean, that, that, that may be one of those situations where you should be a little bit skeptical anyway. <laughs> Gruff or kind, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, he, he had a compelling story. He, was, he said he was, uh, he's in the Navy. And they just docked, and oh. <laughs> he's very far away from from the ship. And to get back on there to get his wallet is such a big deal. Um, but he'd like to have because he's, he's like, I gotta go meet some friends. We're gonna have lunch. Those stuff. I don't have any money. All I have are these cool chains. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds so authentic. I know. That, I mean, because that's the, th- the funny thing is, is like I, I go out of the house and I'm like, I have my keys. Yes, I have my phone. I'm like, there's something else I'm supposed to be bringing. I'm like, I think it's the chains. It's the chains is all I need. And then I realize in the car later, I'm like, oh my gosh, my ID, my credit cards. <laughs> I let that be a lesson to everybody. Keep keep like a stack of gold chains in your glove box at all times. You never know when you have to go over a, a bridge and there might be a troll waiting Right. Well, and the thing is, I mean, like, and I understand people are going to be like, well, does it have to be gold chains? I'm like, well, because gold chains tend to be a little more universal. Um, they, they're they like, if you, like, I tried it once with um, a glove box full of brooches. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't, like, because that's a niche market. Like a gold It really chain. is. The, the beauty of a gold chain, and we've learned this from one Master T, is that you can't say, well, I already have one. You know, that's how wealth and class is established here, is, is not the, 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 just the presence of a gold chain. Any popper can have a gold chain. How many gold chains? <laughs> All right. Hey, unfortunately, we have to bid farewell to Sir Roderick's lamb chops, braids, whatever we're, we're yeah, calling and obviously, and obviously, that's why it took so long for Theon to cut his head, because he was cutting through those. Because <laughs> we didn't actually see what was happening. No, I mean, the, the, the But the narrative being... has, in the story, <laughs> in the language of storytelling, we have been trained to think of those braided sideburns as indestructible. Right. 
I like to think that like if we could, if the camera had panned over, it wasn't that Theon was it, like, it was an inadequacy that was causing him to have to do so much of the cutting. It was that they actually had untangled, r- risen up like dragons and were blocking and biting at the sword. <laughs> because the camera didn't pan over, I don't know that they didn't also at least get one of Theon's men. Oh, oh yeah. And he might have been bit. You don't know. Right. They might have hit him below the belt. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Theon's below the belt is pretty precious to him. That's true. It is. Uh, lot, this episode, a lot happens in this episode. Right. You know, you see this major character shift in Theon. Right. I mean, just, just the look of sort of chaos in his eyes after he actually... You know, we talked a little bit about beheading in one of our first conversations Mm -hmm. about Game of Thrones. And your advice, which I've taken to heart, is if you're going to do that, you got to make sure that this thing doesn't come down like a butter knife. Right. Uh, I knew this was happening immediately. I'm like, I just looked over Heather and he is not getting this thing off in one shot. (laughs) I mean, it's like three or four and then he's got to kick it. Yeah. Oh, that was so rough. I got to kick it off. Because you just, you just picture it hanging there. I mean, we've seen a few beheadings on this show, and they've all gone pretty well. Yeah. You know, relatively speaking. Now, did you shed a tear for Sir Roderick? Because it was like nobility through and through going out. Roderick um, is noble, but now he's no longer able to help. You know what I mean? Like, there's that idea that, like, I would rather die than yield. But there is another sense of, well... <sighs> we might want to survive and maybe even get out of this situation and not even just get out of it, but maybe turn the tables and you can't do that. Dead. If Roderick castle has watched as much TV as I have, you, you wouldn't expect a simple spit to the face to result in beheading. Right. I mean, I've watched a lot of television, Steve. Mm-hmm. And usually what happens is if someone's bound you should expect if you get right up in their face and start insulting them and lording it over them, you're going to get spat at in the face. Yeah. That's it's just par for the course. Outside of one of your children, has anyone ever spit in your face? Hmm. I don't know if my, my children have even spit in my face. I, I mean, I've been like spit peed up on. It. Yeah, I've been, I've been, you know, I've, I've, I've been covered in feces that that shouldn't have been on me. Yeah, it's a good distinction. <laughs> right. I mean, there's there's feces that I would expect to be on me. <laughs> and then there's feces that I would not expect to be on me. Right. Uh, like this one doesn't match the other one. I mean, I've been in social situations. I mean, I've even been in job interviews where an, a little bit of spittle will actually go onto my body. Like, I'll feel it on my arm or something like that. Right. And in those situations, you have that split second decision that you have to make whether or not you acknowledge it or just pretend that. Or just kill them. <laughs> I, I tend to think, I mean, I, don't, I haven't led a job interview seminar, but if I ever were to, I don't think, <laughs> I don't think beheading would be a, a good move in that case. What oh, would you no. do? Would you like make a joke out of it? Or, wh- wh- I mean,. If if you felt a little bit of spittle on your arm from from the interviewer, from the interviewer, yeah, I would probably just look at him. I would hold it up, make sure to get it in the light so that he could see it. Yeah, and I would say to him, "Say it, don't spray it. We're obviously not a fit." 
good day to you, sir. <laughs> I'm making notes. Yeah. So th there's an exchange between Rob and Talisa where he's not sure what to call her. He doesn't call her sir, but he calls no. her lady. Yes. And this is sort of him trying to, like, eke out a little bit more information from her. Yeah. And she's holding her cards pretty close. Yeah. This is a little, little it, it's, it's playful, too, right? I mean, he's still got that stark humility, and he's a little bit of charm mixed in there, but he's... And is on it top charm? Of it, I have a question about charm. He's a very good-looking man. Mm -hmm. Not Maybe not as good-looking as Joffrey. <laughs> However, he's a very good-looking man, and he's got brilliant eyes and a wonderful head of hair. And I'm wondering if that's like 90% of charm. I mean, I, I hear people talk about you know whether someone's charming or not. And I wonder if it's like, well, you're interpreting it that way because... Well, you're beguiled by their visage. Yeah, that's charm. I think I think here's the thing about charm. I think charm is a ruse. I think charm is a term that we use for contextual attraction and it's usually yeah. a juxtaposition. It's usually a juxtaposition, especially of role. Yes, you're absolutely good looking, so it makes it that much easier. You want to keep looking at them, so now you're more compelled to listen to them. Right. So that is an ingredient, right? You can't be charming if no one wants to, to be around you. Yeah, if I it think, was like I, mean, I think you can let's just I mean, say I it's like like Hodor. Mm -hmm. And he's and he got the. Up, he's like Hodor, and you're like, oh, <laughs> exactly. He could say Hodor in whatever kind of intonation he wants, but it's not like eh, he's not a really charming guy. Yeah, but we have seen him completely nude, and there's at least something compelling about him. <laughs> I mean, I don't boy, know, man, that was a lot of white paste. Yeah, he's Babar from the waist down. <laughs> um, so. But yeah, so that's part of it. But I also think that part of the charm, too, is the fact that this is the king of the north. He's just wrecking shop. I mean, there's a legitimate buzz about him throughout the kingdoms, man, yeah, not just yeah. in the camp. And he comes over with a little bit of fumbling, just a touch of aw shucks that goes along with his role. And there's something about that that it's like, you know, for a guy who could do and have whatever he wants, he's, he's talking to me and he seems to be a little befuddled. Uh, I okay, find so, that charming, right? So charm and being charming may may not necessarily be the same thing, uh -huh. but how we interpret them is right. uh, causes an equivalence. So I'm asking, I was asking the question about what sort of stranger you might find trustworthy. Mm -hmm. She endears herself to him by talking smack and sort of not really respecting his authority as king. Right. And she's one of the few people that's doing that, and he uh, clearly he's attracted to her. And he finds immediately, that charming. yeah, he finds that charming. And then, sort of mirrored to that little chemistry relationship, you got Jon Snow up north with uh, mm -hmm. Ygritte. Yeah, who tops from the bottom. She now explain that to those who may not be familiar with that phrase. Um, well, in, uh, in sexual parlance, the top is somebody who is, you know, maybe physically on top. Mm. Um, and that is usually the person that is in control of the, uh, the sexual narrative, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's the bottom, which is usually the receiver. And this doesn't have to be a male, female uh, dynamic. Um, of course. Yeah, so, and if you are topping from the bottom, it's suggesting that you are in the maybe the traditional 
vulnerable position, but you are controlling the narrative. You've run, you're mm -hmm. running the show. So in this case, she's like, she's topping from the little spoon position, but, but that's the sense, right? I mean, Jon Snow would be considered in that position, both when he's got the sword up to her and when they're trying to keep warm in the mm -hmm. dominant position. But she, in both scenarios, has been topping from the bottom. Yeah, I think so. And she's. this is an example of a stranger who is not, he tries to kill her, she tries to kill him. It's not like th this is a cordial relationship. Right. But they do and have yet, things in common. They both want each other dead in that particular scenario. That's, they, they do have that in common. And I would imagine they both like hiking. Yeah, it seems it seems as such. Yeah. And maybe sliding. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I do know this, that I was raised not to run with sharp objects, and Jon Snow clearly hasn't learned that lesson. No, no. That's yeah, that talk. I mean, that, that may be the biggest cultural difference between our modern society and uh, the world of <laughs> Life expectancy is clearly different, and that may be <laughs> the chief offender. Yeah, it's it's it makes me nervous every episode. John loses his magic wolf, and yeah. Danny loses her magic lizards. Yes, yeah, so yeah, magic is fleeting in this episode. I was shocked that we were already getting to the siege of Winterfell, like right out the gate, right? Yes. I mean, because it was kind of it was teased, and then it's happening. So I would assume, and maybe that was the intent, that this was another one of Bran's dreams. Right, like, right. We've begun episodes quite a bit with Bran's dreams. Yeah, and so we see the Raven. We see there's some going on here, and so like I'm thinking, I'm like, okay, he's maybe he's gonna figure this out before it's too late. But then I'm like, oh, this is this is really happening. So there was an interesting use of almost non magic in that case, right? Like, right. I really appreciated the scene between Theon and Bran when he wakes when he wakes Bran up. Yeah, I think Bran delivers that perfectly. Like, why? Right. And it's almost like, are you stupid? Why'd you come over the walls? Why'd you come through the front gate? Yeah, exactly. There's that. It's a really that is a one of the more compelling scenes we've seen so far. It's very human. Yeah, there was some of the the great uh, Tyrion um, moments. I think. I think so too. Oh well, let's talk about Joffrey. Yeah. Oh, baby. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, I needed me one of these. I needed <laughs> the guy overdue. that threw that cow pie at Joffrey's face. This just, I mean, like major league aim on yeah. this. this is I like mean, this, this guy's probably George won Bush. awards for cow pie throwing. And he probably knew it. They knew it too. They said, look, man, we got to get you a good, we got to get you a good seat. And he's probably like, I don't need a good seat. I just need a good pie. <laughs> I want to see a biopic specifically for that guy. Like right. in the same way that you would see like, I don't know, like, um, you know, Ford versus Ferrari. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I want to see that guy. And he's kind of be friends, the older cow pie thrower <laughs> who's sort of disgruntled and his career ended badly, but now he can be a good coach. If he can just, you know, get his alcoholism under control. Right. So you're going to have to take lighter on the mead. Don't tell me how to do my job. Give me the boil, throw it. Look, I'm good at one thing: throwing cowboys. He's Close going second. around from village to village, <laughs> entering tournaments. Yeah, everyone's like, "I really thought you could be something more than this." You don't you don't go pro throwing cowboys? <laughs> well, that could change. You could change it. 
<laughs> see, this is the problem with Game of Thrones. We don't get to see enough commoners because they have compelling stories, Steve. <laughs> yeah. We, <laughs> we just don't get to see them. No. No. Well, and also the nudity is grosser. All right. Arya gets... Uh, she, she uses her second wish. Yeah, immediately. So this is the thing, right? I mean, this is this is the thing about wishes, and I don't think. And we always say like, "Oh, if I had a genie, this is what I like." Yeah, no, but you, you get genies. You know, genies like charm are contextual, man. I mean, it's like we we like to think if everything's going great, you can you can make a plan, you can get these wishes done just right. But as we've seen in most genie narratives, it's at least one wish has to go for the moment. Yeah, it was almost like. Jack and Hagar snapped his fingers. I mean, the way that that scene is cut, it's right. like, look, you got to do it now. Yeah, because he's on his way up. He's now. on his way up, and and somehow, this guy's like a ninja or something. Yeah, yeah. So which begs the question: I mean, how, why was he ever caught in the first place? But that's not what I'm here for. I'm not here to poke holes. I'm here to. There are certain fans who would like to hear your take on this. Oh, was right? was he in that cage? on purpose right that's kind of that's sort of what i've been crafting because i'm like how is he this good yeah yeah. and in that situation and it's like well maybe that situation was beneficial in some way uh yeah yeah could be but yeah so there it is now she's she's down to one a lot of people die this episode yeah a lot of people do die poor poor roderick poor roderick um yeah really poor roderick the way several wildlings Several wild things. Oh, um, one of Danny's. Um, oh, a lot of well, the- uh, ladies in waiting. Uh, her name was Eerie. So a lot of her Dothraki servants get killed, and so no more Eerie. And Sansa almost gets killed. Right. But the Hound saves Sansa. <clears throat> Disembowels that guy. This guy has. He enters that room. And he like lifts the guy up off the ground with one hand. Yeah, I always think that always takes me out of the scene. I always think that's Darth Vader. You're yeah, just... there is, there is an element of like I mean, we, I don't we, care how strong you are and how weak the other little person is to hold someone up with one arm like that. Interesting. You only that ever that see part, that in the movies. Interesting, as opposed to smoke babies. Smoke babies. At at the right hour of the night, depending <laughs> seems, on whether seems, I've watched a scary movie, seems plausible. I I have a different relationship to the idea of smoke babies. You feel like you've probably encountered more potential smoke babies than someone who can lift another person up with one arm. <laughs> yeah, no, I feel like I'm watching an, an A Team episode when I see that kind of thing. So yeah, so we've got now the Hound becomes his compassion and need to protect Sansa has has. It's sort of been on the table, um, but this is, I think, our most explicit, you know, where mm-hmm. he, this feels like a dividing line. The dividing line between him and Joffrey, but not to the point where he wants anything to do with Tyrion, right? So, like, I, it, it's clear. Like, I think the Hound reveals a lot, right? Like, I didn't do this for you. Um, so he, he does no- Yeah, he, that's right. All right. He says, I didn't do this for you. He also says, uh, he has a great line. He says, take the little bird back to her cage. Yeah. Like someone with a little bit more political savvy 
would say something like, make sure that the princess is taken right. back to the castle or whatever. Exactly. He just he's just speaking it. He's just spitting facts. Yep. That's, he, that's his character. Man, when you can lift people up with one hand and disembowel them with the other, you can say whatever you want. That's true. That's and so he's true. out there, you know, and he his need to protect Sansa is comes from something. To, to your point, he recognizes her as sort of a prisoner in this case and basically shreds her of any power for the most part. But it does feel that it runs contrary to Joffrey basically said, like, just leave her. But the Hound wasn't having it. So in a way, it was he went off and he stopped protecting the king to go and get Sansa, even though Joffrey made it clear that he didn't care. There's a couple of ways you can read the Hound statement when he says, I didn't do it for you. One way you could read it is, I didn't do it for you. I did it for Sansa. Right. Another way you could read that is, I didn't do it for you. I did it for me. I enjoy killing people. And this was my opportunity to kill Right, people. that's true. <laughs> this episode won an Emmy for creative arts in makeup. Huh. And I know that sometimes the way these Emmys work is that you're kind of giving it to the whole season, but then you right. have to choose one one episode to submit. And I thought for makeup, like I'm, I'm trying to, th- I'm trying to imagine what was the makeup that would win this particular episode an Emmy. Um, see, and that the makeup one, like, because the makeup isn't necessarily effects, is it? Or can no, it, can in it fact, be? it's this this particular category specifies as non prosthetic. Okay. So it wouldn't be they would have a different one for prosthetic and different uh-huh. one for you know CGI, I suppose. Well, maybe um, maybe Joffrey's face is way shinier than we realize, and the fact that they can kind of make it so that the camera can actually see him at all. Uh, is 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 like an amazing yeah. feat of makeup. Like it's actually can... the, the actor that's playing that role is actually James Earl Jones. <laughs> yes, yeah. and, and the makeup that they yeah. put on him is just phenomenal. Slimming, <laughs> it's incredible. <laughs> on last week's bird's eye view. I noted that Martin likes to use pun names sometimes. And sometimes those pun names give some hint of a future plot point. For instance, Bran means crow in Welsh, and Bran will become the three-eyed crow. That's the kind of thing I'm interested in. And I put out the question to listeners to see if there were any pun names in the first novel that I've missed. I mentioned Ruse Bolton, and I mentioned that he does enact a ruse, and that is a major plot point later on. But a listener pointed me to a little bit more insight into Ruse Bolton's last name. This email comes from Will C. And, Will, I love this so much, I decided to just go ahead and read the whole email. Professor Ladon, I got another piece of Game of Thrones name trivia for you. You talked about the symbolism of Ruse Bolton in terms of his first name. The ruse equals ruse connection. But I got something interesting for you about his last name. In northeastern England, there's a stretch of the River Wharf, where it becomes a placid, gurgling little brook. A calm place to take a pleasant stroll through the woods of Yorkshire. But 
the appearance of this stream masks the fact that it is, if local reputation to be believed, the deadliest body of water in the world. There are zero confirmed cases of anyone stepping into this river and surviving. I did a little research on this myself. No, of course. Zero cases. Eh, but let's just go with it. Let's just go with it. Will continues. The source of this extremely high fatality rate comes from the fact that for a stream that narrow, it is extraordinarily deep. The currents are ridiculously fast, and the shores are massively undercut, and there are plenty of nooks and caves for a body to get snagged on underwater. The name of this stream? The Bolton Strid. Strid coming from the Old English, meaning able to be strided. Part of its deadliness comes from the fact that naive ambulators would try to leap over this stream, underestimating just how vicious the water truly is. I cannot think of a better body of water to represent the quiet, unassuming, shrewd, and deadly Lord of the Dreadfort that we all love to hate. And he includes a couple links on this, and I'll include those in the show notes. Last thought. I'm sure you've seen people point out that the shape of Westeros is basically just Great Britain on top of an inverted Ireland. Side-by-side comparison shows that the Dreadfort is suspiciously located right about where Yorkshire would correspond to. Coincidence? Germ doesn't do coincidences. Sincerely, a fan of the podcast. Will, that is a lot to chew on, and I love it. I love that you've put way too much effort into this. And uh, I suppose that in that way, we are kindred spirits. And that's all for this week.